You know, I have no doubt in my mind that the Word of God is true and all that it affirms, it's without error, it is our authority, it is the constitution of the church and more than the constitution, it's the very words of God. And yet I also believe that unless we recognize that truth, see its relevance for our lives, we're not gonna pay much attention to it perhaps or it's easy not to. So before we read this particular passage of Scripture from Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to see the relevance of it. And the way I've decided to try to do that for you this morning is two incidents from World War II, at least are related to World War II. You say, well, that's a stretch because I wasn't even alive during World War II, so I don't know how that's going to be relevant. Well, you know about World War II because you had grandparents that served perhaps, or parents perhaps who served and It's a big deal. It was a world war after all. And in 1998, not that long ago, it came screaming back into our consciousness with Steven Spielberg's movie, Saving Private Ryan. And I want to remind you of something you probably already heard, that in 1998, after the whole of America went to see Saving Private Ryan, or a lot of America, um, I'm pretty sure almost every evangelical minister in America was touched by the film as I was, and especially by the ending of the film, and felt compelled to say something about that ending of the film. Do you remember how it ended? Or spoiler alert, maybe for those of you that haven't seen it. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should. American Film Institute says that we should. But at the end, the private, James Ryan, who was the object of an intense search following D-Day by Captain John Miller and his squad of soldiers is standing right in front of Captain Miller who is dying of his wounds incurred while he was trying to save Private Ryan. And Private Ryan's being saved because he and three of his brothers are all involved in World War II. One presumed lost in the Pacific Theater earlier and two brothers lost, not presumed, they were lost. They were killed in the D-Day invasion that he also participated in. And when George Marshall found out about that, the commander general, he said, we got to get that kid home for his mother. She can't lose all four of her kids. So the mission went out. And so they finally find him and they rescue him at the end. And yet here he is standing over Captain Miller, who has given his life and five other members of that squad have given their lives just to get him home. And Captain Miller pulls him close and says this indistinguishable muttering. And Ryan says, what, what? And he puts his ear right up to his lips and the captain says, earn this, earn it. Then flash forward 50 years and he is with his family, wife, kids, grandkids, at that cemetery near the beaches in Normandy. And he is at the gravesite of Captain Miller. And you can tell he is deeply moved and touched. They leave him alone, he speaks to the grave there for a few moments. And then his wife comes up to get him like, let's go. And he looks at her and he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And she says, you are. Can you imagine the pressure on that man to earn it? You cost the death of six of us, now earn it. 
The reason every evangelical preacher in America was speaking about that ending is because that is not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did give up his life for us, but he does not say, now earn it. He says, learn it. Learn, I love you. While you were still a sinner, I died for you. I shed my blood for you. I suffered for you. Don't earn it. You couldn't possibly earn it, but learn it. I love you. Second incident um, from World War II has to do with another bleak chapter of human history, and it has to do with the German concentration camps. And among the many who died, six million Jews perished in this Holocaust, this inconceivable, hard to get your head around. One of those who did not die, but was rescued, even though his wife died, his parents died, other family members died, he did not, was Viktor Frankl a psychiatrist from Vienna, acquainted with Sigmund Freud and Adolf Adler, and who came as one of the pillars of psychoanalytical theory. And as soon as he was liberated, um, he set to work writing down what he had observed in those concentration camps, that those who survived were those who had a deep sense of meaning. Now, others died against their will, but some committed suicide, some were, you know, gave up completely because they had no sense of meaning, no sense of purpose, no sense of significance at all. So in 1946 in German and then a decade later, six years later in English, uh, man's search for meaning came to the shelves and was an immediate bestseller. That this guy could survive the concentration camps just thinking about meaning in his life, finding a sense of purpose and that that will absolutely change your life. It'll change your trajectory. Well, Larry Crabb, who is a Christian psychologist who died just this year in March, thought that Freud and Adler and um, Frankel were all onto something, that even though it's not in scripture this succinctly, that we can learn from general revelation, from the insights of others, and we can spoil the Egyptians, so to speak, And we can see that the greatest needs of human hearts are security and significance. And it just so happens that the book of Ephesians speaks to both of those deep human longings. So I want you to pay attention to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 because it does speak to the whole point of what is your life all about? What are you doing here on planet earth? How will you know if you really have the right stuff to please the Lord. Two weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter one, which is a great summary section for the whole message of the first three chapters about our security in Christ. Today, we look at chapter four, verses one through 16, a great summary section of the entire content of chapters four through six about our significance in Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writing says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All flesh is grass, and all of its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. This great passage of Scripture that is very dense and complex in many ways can be boiled down in terms of our understanding it to one key word in this entire 16-verse section, one absolutely critical word, one word that makes all the difference in the world between what we think the gospel is and what it is not. And that word may surprise you. It's a very important word whenever we're trying to understand any particular part of Scripture because it is a word that highlights the importance of context. It's the word, therefore, therefore. Without that word, we might think that Jesus is saying to us today, earn this. We've talked about the forgiveness of sins earlier today. Now you darn well better earn it. We've talked about the inestimable blessings that we enjoy as Christians, and you better earn it. Or if we have therefore, then we've got to find out what the therefore is there for. And so we look at chapters one through three and we recognize that the summary is in chapter one, verse three, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ by grace. And from that secure position, you're not earning this. Please don't forget chapters one through three. Please don't forget that you are loved by your heavenly father, that you are incredibly secure. Remembering that? Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that calling which you have received. Another film, a book turned into a film, The Right Stuff by Thomas Wolfe was the book. It's all about the astronauts and the test pilots that were the lead up to the astronauts that uh, began to fly the uh, space program. And the right stuff refers to those characteristics that these pilots had to have if they were going to be in the elite and chosen to be astronauts in training. Did they have the right stuff? If Alfred Adler was on to anything when all he talked about was inferiority complexes, he knows that we in the human heart kind of wonder all the time, do I have the right stuff to be whatever it is that I want to be? Do I, do I really measure up? Do I have the right stuff? 
We all have this problem with inferiority, not feeling secure. We're insecure and we need to become secure. In Ephesians 1 through 3, a believer in Jesus is made to feel very secure. And so now in Ephesians 4 and concluding and going through chapter 6, from that security, this is what significance looks like. I wanted you to know some stuff in chapters 1 through 3, to be some stuff in chapters 1, to realize who you are. And now I want you to do some stuff, says this Paul, who identifies himself through a double entendre as a prisoner for the Lord Jesus. Double entendre because he's not only in prison because he is preaching Jesus, so it's because of Jesus that he's in prison, but he is also a prisoner of the Lord that he has been taken captive by Jesus and he owes his entire life to Jesus and he only does that which is pleasing to his commanding officer. So, huh, kind of cool, double entendre. I... Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, beg you, entreat you, exhort you, is what that verb means, to walk worthy. Now, if you're following in the New International Version, you're wondering, where's that word walk? I don't see walk anywhere in there. Well, they translate it live in a manner worthy. But literally, it is walk and that's why the King James you're familiar with, it says, oh, I remember Ephesians, that's the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the believer. And those three W's, before there were three W's in a uh, World Wide Web, um, those three W's are a good way to outline the whole book. From the wealth that we have and our security, we then move to a walk, a life, a life that has the right stuff if it has these four characteristics. We find the four not through imperatives. Imperatives are all through chapters four through six. There's maybe one uh, counting said there's one imperative in chapters one through three. It's all indicative mood. It's just stating the facts. And then when we get to chapter four, it's all indicative. Do this, do this, do this, do this, 40 times. Well, actually there's not an imperative here. But we have an imperatival force with this, I exhort you to walk, to walk in a manner worthy. So what is that worthiness? Chapter, um, chapter four, verse two gives us the first characteristic or attribute of the right stuff. Gently, humbly, I want you to walk with humility. Walk with humility. With, uh, I want you to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, all humility. Now there's some other characteristics that explain that humility. Gentleness is one. Gentleness and humility go very well together. Humility is from a Greek word that means very low and lowly. It was not a prized word in classical Greek. They said, oh, well, I don't want to be the bottom. I don't want to be low. I want to be exalted. I want to be high. But Jesus said, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be among you. That if you want to be the leader, you're supposed to be the servant of all. You're to make yourself lowly. And you're to be gentle and to be meek. Blessed are the meek, which is that same word, gentle. Um, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and meek, and you will find rest for your souls. In Jesus, this great exalted King of kings and Lord of lords, who took the lowly place, and he said, I will be humble and gentle. Oh, meek. Yeah, we know what that means. That means weak. That means a doormat. No, meek does not mean weak. And we see that even in the etymology of the word itself in Greek when it is used frequently to describe fierce war horses in battle who have been put under the control of somebody else. That the rider determines where that horse goes rather than that horse deciding where I want to go. 
And the horse is delighted in that. The horse finds its purpose and its meaning in serving its rider. So that is not a weak horse, but it is a meek horse. Are we really supposed to be humble? Of course we are. Philippians chapter 2, that we are to not only look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. We are not to do anything out of selfish conceit or pride, but we are to humble ourselves. And then what does Paul say? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, became a human being in all ways. And having become a human being, he took on the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, and he was obedient to his father, even to the point of death. That's how we're supposed to be, having this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ. We are to walk with humility. These are just the first four attributes of a worthy walk because that word walk is gonna show up again in verse 17 of our chapter and in verses two, eight, and 15 of chapter five, giving us other attributes of a worthy walk. So I'm not gonna exhaust the subject today in these four, but these are the first four and these are the four that I believe we need to hear for today. Walk with humility. That means gently. But that also means patiently with forbearance. What does that mean? That means that there's more than one way to load the dishwasher. There are a few control freaks out here that think, oh, no, not in my house. There's not more than one way. There is one way. And I've been trying to train him, train her for 30 years to do it the right way. And it's just, there's more than one way, more than one right way to load the dishwasher. There's more, more than one right temperature for the thermostat. Nervous laughter always helps me know. I go, hey, you're getting there, you're getting there. There's more than one way to squeeze the toothpaste tube. There's more than one kind of music by which to worship God. Yeah, that's good, we don't laugh at that one. I go, this is getting close to home. There are differing attention spans. We don't all have the same attention span. We got kids here today, right? Little kids in worship, they're here because there's nowhere else to go. Mom and dad said, nope, you got to come. And yet, do you not have any compassion for them listening to a 30-minute sermon? Do you not care at all their pain, their, their kids? I just want you to know my wife feels your pain. My wife thinks you guys are really heroes for hanging in there, doing so well and all this. And so she encouraged me, you got to say something to the kids in the midst. I mean, we had a word to the children, but really, is that enough? No, we got to bring them involved. So kids, I want to tell you um, a little story. It's a joke, basically, um, to help you engage. See, other kids once were on their way down to the worship service. Their Sunday school teacher was leading them to meet their children at the sanctuary for the worship service. And the teacher was continuing the lesson already studied in Sunday school and said, now, who can tell me why we have to be quiet in the sanctuary? And one little girl with a very short attention span, but really a bright observer of human nature said, because people are sleeping. <laughs> well, 
we all know that's not the reason that we are to be quiet in the sanctuary. You know, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's out of reverence and awe for God that we worship him reverently and quietly. But our awesome God, who is high and holy, is not so high and holy that he doesn't care about the attention spans of little kids. So kids, we don't say it enough. Jesus loves you. Jesus knows what you're going through. That's why he took the little children in his arms and he blessed them. He he cares. And maybe the rest of us should too. Forbearing even children and their short attention spans. Walk in unity. Humility in verse two. Unity in verses three through six. You are, I urge you to walk eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's important for us to realize that we're not creating this unity. We are to maintain this unity. This unity is created by the Holy Spirit of God. The inclusion that we've talked about already through Brett's explanation of baptism is not something that we bring about. No, it's by the Spirit of God that we have unity with all other believers who have the same sign of the covenant, baptism. It's glue that holds us together. It is to be maintained by us. It's not a a no-brainer. It's not easy to maintain that unity. Every couple knows that. You can have unity in the bond of peace, but that peace is fragile. Families know what that's like. You can all of a sudden have World War III in your family when you thought you were doing well, but one person got off and then the other person got irritated and didn't forbear, and then somebody else jumped in and all of a sudden... What happened to our unity? We have unity biologically. We're all the same family or by adoption. We are all one family. What on earth has gone wrong here? And it can all go bad pretty quickly, but it ought not because we're gonna make every effort to maintain that unity of the spirit. That unity is expressed in the seven, the magnificent seven, you could call it if you're into movies and stuff, the magnificent seven, all of these ones beginning in verse four, There is one body, there is one spirit. You are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is great unity. In the land of Castaway, the movie, um, which is Memphis, right? That's, that's where, that's headquarters for FedEx. And this guy, that's FedEx guy, and he's out and he's marooned on a desert, deserted island forever. We ought to understand the story about a similar traveler who was marooned out on a desert island and did everything he could, as did Tom Hanks and Castaway, to try to get somebody to notice him. And sure enough, they did finally, after years of being there, he finally got noticed. One of his fires was seeing the smoke from it and they came in a boat beside him and they sent a little dinghy up to get him off the island. He was overjoyed, he was excited. And they're asking him as they're taking him in the boat back to the big boat, how did you survive? And he tells them about the food he ate, how he found clean water, how he found shelter, all these different things. In fact, that's my shelter up there on the ridge. And they can see three dwellings up there. And they go, gosh, that's incredible. That's pretty impressive. You know, so where's your house? Which one's, oh, my house is the one on the right. Okay. And then the one in the middle is my church. I I kept my faith in God. I worship there every Sunday. Uh, I kept track. Oh, that's awesome. So what's the third building? Oh, that's where I used to go to church. for very light and transient causes, 
we break the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to go off to a different church. I don't like the way that they're doing that today. It offended me that that came up. It, if that refers to something which is fundamental to the faith, then fine, we all must leave because we have to leave in order to stay with Christ. But if that is just something else, then maybe we need to stay and make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, having said that, I also believe that none of us is a member here by compulsion. And if there, and it's all the same bank. Every church in Memphis that preaches this same gospel is the same bank. We're just different branches. So if you think you can do your banking better at another branch, okay, but make sure you're not going away mad. And make sure you're not going away with a sense of that church is inferior, it's really worthless, it's become awful. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with all these seven ones that ought to hold us together. The joke actually uh, leads us into another point as well. Walk by diversity in verses 7 through 12. We don't have time to do the justice that is uh, deserved for this, but it's a diversity of two kinds, of spiritual gifts that not every believer has the same gift. Having read in verse 6 that this God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in all, and then verse 7, but to each one of us, from four alls to one each, we recognize Paul doesn't want us to be confused. No, the unity of which I speak is not uniformity. Now, there's diversity within that unity as well. And so, you're not all going to have the same gifts as believers in Christ. You be you and, and share your gift. And that becomes clear or even in verse, in verse 12. But the second kind of unity or diversity is a, differ, a diversity of spiritual office, not spiritual gifts, but spiritual office. And that goes into all the complicated stuff about he ascended, he descended. Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, 18, and he is recognizing in that Psalm that the only way that the Holy God could dwell in the midst of his people, his people Israel, the people that he brought out of Egypt, he could not dwell among them because of their sin unless he provided a way, which he did by taking one of those 12 tribes captive. And Numbers 8 describes that the tribe of Levi, he held captive, and then he gave those Levites back to Israel so that he might dwell in the midst of a rebellious people through the sacrifices of the temple, the sacrifices of the tabernacle. And so the Levites were critical. Why do you bring that up, Paul? Because in the same way that the Levites were enabling the people of God to have God in their midst, in the New Testament, God has not Levites, but he has apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the prophets and the apostles are for the foundation of the church. When that, once that has been laid and we have the words of the apostles and the prophets in our scripture, then those offices will go away. Evangelists take the gospel to places where it hasn't been known. Pastor teachers take the gospel to people who are established in a particular place and feed them with God's word as they shepherd them. We know that those two offices are combined because there's only one definite article that combines them both, whereas each of the others has another. You can probably tell, hey, you could say more about that, but thank you so much for not saying more about that. Just recognize there is a need for um, diversity. Um, Finally, walk toward maturity. Humility, unity, diversity, maturity. 
That maturity in verses 13 through 16 is of two types. It means that we would grow the church in more and more people. More and more people need to hear the gospel. We cannot turn our backs on our neighbors, our work associates, the people that we play sports with and games with. Don't turn your back on them because they've exhibited some hostility to the gospel, because they've shown indifference to the gospel. No, continue to live with them, to love them, to be kind with them, to serve them, all in the hope that you might have an opportunity to give a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with respect so that we want to see others come to Christ. You say, whoa, 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 time out. you're talking to yourself. Ministers are the ones who are supposed to go out there and evangelize. It's not we the people. No, we the people are the ones who do this work of the ministry because it says that God gave all these different offices, four offices, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's the congregation's task and it involves both evangelism, more and more people, and discipleship, more and more Christ-likeness. We need to become more and more like Christ. Well, um, yeah, I'm going to do it. Uh, One more joke about that Christ-likeness. Here is a fatal flaw of Christ-likeness. It's exhibited in a family that was enjoying Saturday morning pancakes by dad. And dad's making the Saturday morning pancakes and Henry, who's age five, and James, who's age three, cannot wait to have the first pancake. In fact, they start arguing about who's going to get the first pancake. Dad, being a genius, sees a teachable moment here and says, okay, wait, 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 guys, I'm just picturing Jesus at this table. And I think what Jesus would say is, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Henry the Older didn't wait long at all. He said, James, you be Jesus. That's what we do with Christ-likeness. We're in a conflict with somebody. We are Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4, knowing that we need to, to live in unity and in harmony, but we're not able to. We're having an outage there. You be Jesus. You turn the other cheek. You forgive me 70 times 7. You handle it. You take the initiative. You come to me. No. You be Jesus. Let me be Jesus. The whole point of this sermon is to exhort you. I would feel very uncomfortable exhorting you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received if it were not for that word, therefore. Look at what you have, the love, the security from a loving God. You have no inferiority complex. I don't care who you are. If you know Jesus, you are dearly loved and equipped with every good work for doing his will. So walk worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us. Holy Spirit, thank you for empowering us. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for showing us the way and for making it possible for us to be your brothers and sisters in the body of your own headship dearly loved by ours and your heavenly Father. Please show each one of us which of these four attributes of the right stuff we have been neglecting or we most needed to hear this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, enable us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
We pray in your own name because there is none higher. Amen.